welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good evening. Welcome along to Gateway this evening. Thrilled that you're here with us. Um, We're going to start a series, um, but it's kind of an odd way of doing it because I'm going to do one week and then there's a couple of weeks break before we come back to it. So in some ways, this is a little bit of a primer um, setting you up for the series that I want to talk about over a, a few weeks, in a few weeks' time. It's basically about becoming a generous people and developing a generous life. Um, cultivating, as it were, a spirit of generosity. And I want to do this message simply called Open Heart, Open Hands. Um, We've just finished a series on worship, and the theme of the worship series was open hands. I want to build on that idea and suggest to you that um, our hands are open because our heart is and that the heart dictates what happens to the hands. So we're gonna develop that thought as we go tonight. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this picture that's usually called praying hands. Now there's a story behind this picture and it goes back into the 15th century into a tiny village near Nuremberg in Germany where there lived a family of 18, uh, that had 18 children. Uh, You can imagine, they were actually a very poor family and the father worked 18 hours a day as a goldsmith trying to keep uh, food on the table for his rather large brood. But despite their seemingly hopeless predicament, two of Albrecht Dürer's children had a dream. They both wanted to pursue uh, what was a very clear talent they had for art. Now they knew that there was no possible way that their father would be able to provide the funds to allow them to study at the Art Academy. So two of the boys made a pact together. They would toss a coin and the loser would go down into the nearby mines and he would work for uh, four years and use his earning to support his brother while he attended the academy. And when those four years are up and that brother had completed his study, he would support the second brother either by the sales of his artwork, hopefully, or if necessary, by going and laboring in the mines. So one Sunday morning after church, they tossed a coin and Albrecht Jr. won the toss and went off to Nuremberg. His brother Albert went down into the mines and for the next four years worked and financed his brother. Albrecht Jr.'s work, by the way, was an almost immediate sensation. His etchings, his woodcuts, his oils were far better than the other students and in many instances much better than the professors that were seeking to teach him. And by the time he graduated, he was actually earning a considerable amount of money from his commissioned works. End of the four years, the young artist returned to his village and the Dura family held, held a festive dinner on the lawn outside their home to celebrate his triumphant homecoming. And after a long and memorable meal punctuated with music and laughter, Albrecht rose from his honored position at the end of the table and uh, suggested that they uh, drink a toast to, her, to his beloved brother who for four years had sacrificed to enable him to fulfill his ambitions. And his closing words at the end of his toast were, now, and now Albert, my blessed brother, it is your turn. You can go to Nuremberg and pursue your dream and I will take care of you. 
Well, all the heads at the table turned in eager expectation to the far end where Albert sat and noticed that tears were streaming down his face. He shook his head and said, no, brother, I can't go to Nuremberg. It's too late for me. And he held up his hands to his cheeks. Look what the mines have done to my hands, he said. The bones in almost every finger have been smashed at least once, and lately I've been suffering from arthritis in my right hand so badly that I cannot even hold the glass to return your toast, much less make the delicate lines on a parchment or a canvas with a brush or pens. No, brother, for me it's too late. Well, more than 450 years have passed, and today you can find Albrecht Dürer's hundreds of masterful portraits, pen and silver point sketches, watercolors, charcoals, woodcuts, and copper engravings in most of the great museums of the world. That work that we have on the screen is probably the one that you are most familiar with. And one day, to pay homage to his brother for all that he had sacrificed, Albrecht painstakingly drew his brother's abused hands with palms together, pointing upward, thin fingers stretched skyward. He simply called the work hands, but the entire world almost immediately opened their heart to this great masterpiece, and they named it Praying Hands. You know, you can tell a good deal about a person just by looking at their hands. Without being a detective, I think you could probably quite easily distinguish between a builder and an office worker between a farm laborer and perhaps a school teacher, between a supermodel and a housewife with four kids, just by looking at their hands. By observing a person's hands, you can tell whether they're nervous or whether they're relaxed, whether they're angry or whether they're happy. And I wonder this evening if an artist were commissioned to do a drawing of your hands, a picture that was to capture the dominant themes of your life, I wonder what he would draw. Perhaps a finger pointed accusingly to indicate victimization, perhaps a fist clenched in anger or revenge, maybe hands ringing with anxiety, hands that are rough and worn from our workaholism, or perhaps, and hopefully, something altogether more positive. I do know one position, however, that would characterize all of us, at least for some of the time, and for many people, most of the time because it's a position that is deeply, profoundly symptomatic of an issue that gnaws at the heart of every single human being, and it's clutching hands. Hands reaching out, trying to grab something. And for most of us, especially perhaps outside of Christ, clutching is as natural to us as breathing. As newborns, we emerge with our hands closed, and for the first few months, we clutch at our mother or father's fingers and hang on for all our little strength. Toddlers grab rattles and pretty much anything else they can reach for and usually stuff them straight in their mouths. Young child grabs his toys, hold on tight, and says, mine! At primary school, we hold tightly to our bike handlebars and our bags, lest someone should try and take them from us. At secondary school, we hold on tight to our girlfriend or boyfriend in case somebody does the same. At university, we reach out and grab for whole lots of things, but mostly we generally leave clutching our degree. We start work and we grab the lowest rung on the ladder and start clutching and climbing one by one. 
In retirement, we clutch our golf clubs and our gardening tools and our social security pension. And when we're old, we clutch our canes and our walkers. And in our final moments, we clutch the hands of our loved ones if we're lucky enough, or we clutch the side of the bed as life slips away. And finally, it seems, we die and relax our grip. We are by nature clutches. And we are clutches because of a fear that grips the hearts of us all, and it's the fear of not having. Nearly all of us at some points of our lives, and many of us for most of our lives, are gripped by a fear that we don't have enough. We haven't got enough to secure ourselves against the vagaries of this broken world that we face. You know, the ironic thing is that that attitude grips the hearts of people that we would look at and say, man, they've got it all. If you've ever read the biography of Howard Hughes, you know, one of the things, though he was a multi, multi multi-millionaire, probably a billionaire, he was frightened of losing it. And a lot of rich people are gripped by that fear. It actually doesn't matter whether you are a have or a have not, as far as this world defines those things, that fear affects us all. The have-nots fear that they will always be without, and the haves fear that they will somehow lose what they possess and be without, and it causes us all to be clutches. Deuteronomy speaks to this issue. There's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, that I want to focus on as we talk about this issue tonight, and it reads like this. If there be among you a poor man of one of your brethren within any of your gates in the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide unto him and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wants. Beware that there be not a thought in your wicked heart, saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cries, unto the Lord against you, and it be sin unto you. This passage outlines a number of features that characterize our clutching hearts, and I want you, I want you just to look with me at, at them. First of all, I want you to see there is a thought that comes to your heart. In this whole area of fear, we often give place to the reasoning of what I call a spirit of poverty. And that spirit of poverty tells us, you don't have enough. You need to look after what you got. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. Be careful. And we give heed to that thought. A thought comes to your heart. You can't afford that. You'll be left with nothing. Jesus actually spoke to his disciples about this very issue, and he was trying to break his disciples free from that deep inner fear of not having enough. And he started off in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and I'm going to read it to you. You listen and hear how many times he says something like, take no thought. Remember, Deuteronomy says, a thought is being offered. He says, therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to your stature? And why take thought for raiment? 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore take no thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Five or possibly six times, depending on what you count, Jesus talks to them and says, take no thought. Remember Deuteronomy says, a thought comes to your wicked heart. Jesus is saying, don't take it. And the reason he's saying don't take it is that one is being offered to you. A spirit of poverty comes and offers you a thought. You need that, don't give that away. You, don't, you can't afford to be generous in this instance. Don't do it. And that fear resigns you to not having and therefore resolves you to not giving. You become resigned to not having, therefore resolved to not giving. And the ultimate result of embracing that thought is that you will have a hardened heart. That's what Deuteronomy says. It shall harden your heart. You shall harden your heart. You know what? The state of your heart always determines the posture of your hands. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, in the message translation simply says, the heart regulates the hands. Whatever's going on in the heart will be manifest in the posture of your hands. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, in the Williams translation says, Paul exhorts believers to be open-handed and generous-hearted. One is the source, the other is the result or the flow. Generous-hearted results in being open-handed. On the contrary, a hardened heart results in a clenched fist. Deuteronomy then goes on to say, you take a thought, it hardens your heart, you shut your hands toward your brother. And then it goes on to say, and if you continually give place to those reasonings, that spirit of fear ultimately will result in a settled state that the scripture calls an evil eye. You take a thought, it hardens your heart, you close your hands, you have an evil eye. You say, well, what, what does it mean to have an evil eye? Well, in scriptural times, to have an evil eye was literally to be stingy in spirit. We would call such a person a miser. Someone who's miserly with their resources. Most of us strongly resist the idea that we would be a miser. If you use the word, you use it to describe somebody else. Very, very few people that I know of would describe would, would describe themselves as a miser. However, having said that, let me just say to you, sociological research, surveys done with large number of people from the West indicate that nearly half the people, 44.8%, close to half, surveyed give absolutely nothing to anybody else or to any charitable causes. They don't give anything away. And 86% of those surveyed give less than 2% of their income. Now, you might be saying, well, Don, you know, we're Christians, we, we tithe, we give 10%. Those figures can't accurately represent us. Well, I've read other surveys that suggest actually about 1.8% of Christians tithe, so I'm not quite sure how much better than the average we, we Christians actually are. 
And, and quite frankly, some of us probably fall into the category of being very miserly. Now, we might disguise it by calling it fiscal responsibility. It's amazing how you can justify your miserliness by describing it in terms that's, that actually seem to make you wise. Ironically, the Bible says that embracing that miserly spirit doesn't deliver you from poverty, but to it. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 22 says, he that hastens to be rich has an evil eye and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. The very thing that he's trying to guard himself against will ambush him. You don't deliver yourself from poverty by your miserliness, you deliver yourself to it. Deuteronomy 15 tells us to respond to this thought that's being offered, because that's where it starts. A thought is offered, we begin to embrace the reasonings of that thought, it hardens our heart, it closes our, eye, it closes our hands, and it develops into a settled state where we, we are, other than being generous with our resources. Deuteronomy says, respond to that spirit in an opposite way. When it tells you, you can't afford that, open your hands. Open your heart and open your hands. Open your hand wide to your brother, it says. What a difference there is between our hearts and our hands and God's heart and his hands. His heart and hands are always open, phenomenally, lavishly generous. In creation, he lavishly forms and fashions our world. He he holds nothing back. He's not victimized by the thought that if he gives away liberally, somehow there will be less left for him. And throughout history, God has opened his heart and his hands and provided for his people. Provision, protection, blessing, hope, and love. Psalm 145 verse 16 says, you open your hands and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The living Bible captures it well. Generous to a fault, you lavish your favor on on all creatures. God the Father opened his heart and hand and gave his son to come to earth to procure our redemption. Imagine if he had been afflicted by that same thought pattern that so often overcomes us. Don't give him, he's the only one you've got. You can't afford to give him. For goodness sake, save him for a rainy day. When Jesus came, he saw the poor, the needy, and he opened his hands to heal, to touch, to feed, and to free, and ultimately opened his hands really wide on the cross. And ascending into heaven, then gives gifts to the church. And Ephesians 4, verse 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11 in the message translation says, he handed it out in gifts to all people. His open heart meant his hands were open and he handed out gifts. And the Holy Spirit liberally distributes gifts to the people of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven, all kinds of things are handed out by the Spirit to all kinds of people. The heart and hands of God are open. The open hands are an outward sign of the inward reality, the phenomenal generosity of the God that we serve. And all that to say, he wants you that he's redeemed to make, uh, to, to be part of his family, his sons and daughters, to start looking like him. If you are born of the giver, his seed, if I can put it this way, of givingness should start to be manifest in you. 
Now, when you start talking like this, you can almost always hear the, you know, the cogs turning and somebody starts to, you know, if they don't verbalize it, they certainly think, it. Oh, you know, the church needs money. God and the church are trying to raise money. Listen, God is not interested in raising money. He's very interested in raising children. Okay, he's not short of money. The Bible says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He is not trying to raise money. He's trying to raise kids. And he wants those kids to be like him, to look like him. Not to be stingy, hard-hearted, close-fisted, clutching. He wants to touch us so profoundly by his grace that the heart change means the hands are all altered. Classic example in the New Testament is Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who until he meets Jesus as a tiny little guy who's clutching at everything, hanging on to money as fast as he can get it, willing to lose friends and relationships just so long as he's got more. The more monster has got that guy in his grip until Jesus meets him. Jesus has a meal with him and the guy comes out and opens his hands. If I've taken from him, I'll give it back. If I've taken from him, I'll give four times back. The heart touched profoundly by the grace of God opens up and suddenly Zacchaeus is manifesting this open-handed generosity. When you live deeply with a sense of God's generosity to you, you will find your hands starting to look more like his. They will be opened more frequently and they will stay open for longer periods. Friends, there's something dreadfully wrong when we claim to be redeemed by this grace-giving God and yet our lives are manifested by hands that clutch and grab everything this world offers us in the way of resources. And I wanna just say to you, that clutching affects way more than just money. It, it, it affects us in terms of the way we enter into relationships. We've probably all been in a relationship with an incredibly possessive person who clutches at, at the other, other person. And, and you know, the amazing thing is almost always it drives that person away. The thing that they fear losing, they actually lose. Remember, you, you clutch in order to resist poverty and it's, you are delivered unto it. Maybe tonight you are that clutching person in terms of relationships. But I've watched it in all kinds of things. I was a school teacher and I used to marvel at the way the teachers guarded their lesson plans and their resources and their ideas as if it was the golden Fort Knox. They didn't wanna share it with other people. Uh, you, you, you know that chefs are famous for the lengths they go to keep their recipes secret. They don't wanna share it. And let me share a secret with you. It impacts the way pastors function with potential parishioners. It's just as easy for us to become clutching. And I often have the incredible privilege of talking to other leaders, and one of the things I talk to them about is the fact that so often our language betrays us. And we, we have a new family come into the church and we hear that they're musicians and we're struggling with musicians. And on the way home as we're driving, we say to our spouse, man, I hope they stay, we could sure use them. And, and they've become products that we grab and clutch and, and, and use rather than people that actually we're called to, to bless, to release, to, to be generous with. How would the artist portray your hands tonight? I, I wanna tell you, you'll never open your hands unless you allow God to touch your heart. 
And when you begin to understand something of the generosity and grace of God that has touched your heart, it will impact your hands. And we have to allow God to challenge that deep fear, that spirit of poverty that says, me first. You know, when Elijah was sent to the widow at Zarephath, this, this, the scripture says this woman had hardly anything left. She just had a little bit of meal and a little bit of oil that she'd been saving. She knew she had one more meal before her and her son perished. And I wonder how long she'd kept that. I wonder how long she had put off the day until finally she says, all right, well, we've got to do it now, knowing that when she's used that, there would be nothing left. And then as she's going to prepare this meal, she meets Elijah, the man of God, and Elijah says, excuse me, but would you take the resources that you have and make me something first, and if you do that, you'll have enough for the rest of the time. I don't know how you'd respond. I don't know how I would respond. I'd be like thinking, okay, I'm not sure that I'm gonna do this. But remember in that passage I read to you from Matthew, it says, seek ye what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, these things shall be added to you. It's all in the midst of, don't take a thought that poverty is offering you. Come to the table and put God first. And Elijah says to this woman, you put me first. I'm the man of God and I'm telling you, you put me first. If you honor me with that first fruits, I will look after you. And she takes up the bargain. She takes up the offer and, and, and God provides for her and provides for her son. And that's the challenge to you and me. The thought of poverty says, you look after number one, you, you, you know, be fiscally responsible. And by the way, in, even in saying that, I'm not suggesting you be fiscally irresponsible, but I am saying that God says to you, you honor me first. One of the ways that you begin to open your hands and prize free your fingers from this clutching spirit is with what you have, you honor me. And then let's see, you and me together, if we can't change the world with a spirit of generosity that just blows people off the, off the planet. Because this world is marked by numero uno, I look after me. 86% of the people in our world, and our Western world, give less than 2% of what they earn. And for nearly half, nothing. I wanna tell you, when the people of God are marked with the same, 1.8% tithing, Something has gone tragically wrong in our understanding of the grace of God. Don't think I'm trying to raise money, okay? God is trying to raise kids. Now, he's really interested in money. If you wanna see how interested he is in money, you go through the scriptures and count up the number of times in the New Testament the Bible talks about prayer and faith and then go through and talk about the number of times it talks about money. It's completely out of what order in terms of what we would imagine. I, I, I wanna just say, I don't think that God is too worried about his kids having things. It's when the things have his kids that he gets really disturbed. And it's really easy for us to say, oh, well, you know, things haven't got me. Well, try giving some of them away and see how it goes. See how easy it is. And I, I wanna tell you, you'll realize more often than you know, a thought is being offered, and more often than, I'm care, than I care to admit, I take it and think, oh, gee, I can't do that. Mm. Not this week, maybe another week. And you know how many weeks go by before I come back to it? I think I can speak like that because I pretty much know your heart is very, very much like mine. 
We've got to allow God to challenge that deep fear that makes us clutches. He's our father. And he says, I'll look after you. Don't panic. Don't think that you have to resource yourself. I will look after you. Listen again to that passage in Matthew. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add one single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? When we clutch and grab and, and, and feel like we have to resource ourselves and secure ourselves against the trouble of the possible trouble of tomorrow, we show our lack of faith in our Father. And he wants to break that spirit. I'm constantly amazed at the excuses that we can come up with for not giving. I was telling the congregation this morning, Chris and Hope and Karen and I occasionally get together and just we enjoy having Friday night and getting fish and chips. And a couple of times, actually the last twice that we've done it, we've gone down to our local and outside has been a person who said, as we've gone, excuse me, excuse me, and we stopped. And they've said, you know, and they explained that they had a family and the family, had, you know, they gave us a long story and, and said, look, we've got nothing to eat. In both occasions we said, okay, what do you want? What would you like? Give us your order. So we took their order and we went in and, and ordered it. It didn't, didn't cost us anything, but it was really interesting because we were sitting in there waiting for our orders and this guy burst in, you know, classic Kiwi guy, and he said, oh, I see them outside. Did they ask you? And we said, yeah, 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 they did. Oh, you know, you can't meet every need in the world and you never know they could be just having you on anyway. Clearly, you know, and I mean, I understand that, you know. Um, when you give to people, you don't know what they're going to do with it. You can be ripped off. Um, for those of you who've gone to Asia, you know, there's constant beggars on the streets and, you know, we're Manila and Jakarta and, and, and Bangkok and that. You can say, nah. You can say, well, you know, and I've heard a lot of people say, you know, they just send it, they spend it on alcohol, they spend it on drugs. Don't give it to them. Well, listen, okay, if you don't want to give them money, see if they can give them food. Somebody said to me this morning, I don't give them money, but I'll ask, can I get you a meal? Well, that, that's probably wise. If you're worried about being ripped off, ask what they want. We, we don't actually give away money here at Gateway, but we've got lots of food vouchers and petrol vouchers, and, and sometimes we've taken people down who've wanted a bus ticket, and we've bought them the bus ticket. You say, but yeah, Don, you never know. They could go around the corner and hock it off. Yep, you, they could. You, you might as well decide right now, if you're going to be generous, you're going to be ripped off. Because God is, and he, and he gets ripped off by people who take his grace and abuse it. And, and, and he says on one occasion, you know, if they do that to the master, they're going to do it to his servants as well. You might as well determine, I'd rather be generous and get ripped off than be really discerning and fiscally responsible and end up a miser who, who doesn't look at all like the father who has so graciously redeemed him. Make up your mind. The purpose of this series is to help us cultivate a generous spirit, a generosity of heart that is free with resources wherever we find them, that we become a channel for resources rather than a cul-de-sac that 
stacks them up and counts them like Scrooge McDuck. A little while ago, probably, I don't know, maybe two months ago, Gateway gave away a very, very large amount of money. Now, we tithe on all of the offerings that come in. When you give, we take 10% of it and we give it away. But this, is, this was money that we had given 10% away and then we'd saved with a view to maybe, you know, looking at trying to fix the building or do whatever. And um, we, we decided as a leadership team, why don't we double tithe? Why don't we take that and tithe that? And um, you know, I, I tell you, you know, when you start thinking like that, there's a thought offered. You, you can't afford to do that, man. This place leaks like a sieve. When, when it rains, we can baptize people just as they walk through the door. <laughs> you know, we, we don't even have to be intentional about it. You want to see it. Sometimes it's like a fountain that pours down. There's lots of things. There's ministries. There's, you know, I could get real spiritual about it. You know, there's ministries that we could give to. Well, we just decided we want to be a generous people. We want to be a generous church. We want you to be generous people if you're part of this church. We want to look like our Father in heaven who is so gracious, so open-handed. So that's the purpose of the series, okay? We don't get caught with a thought that causes our hearts to be hard, our hands to be closed, our eye to be evil. When that thought comes, we take no thought. We're not taking that thought. I'm ashamed to have to admit this, but there have been times over the years when I've preached a series, I've, I've had some resources, whether it books or in those days way back, you know, cassette tapes or CDs or whatever, and I'd developed a series and some pastors had heard it and they rang me and, and said, man, that was a really good series. Where did you get that from? And I was like, hmm, a thought. Don't give it to them. Don't give it to them because they could take a credit for all the work you've put into that. Don't, don't give that away. Don't let them know where you got that. In a flash, a thought. Well, I've learned over the years that when I hear that thought, to respond by, oh man, I got it from these books, I got it from these tapes, I got it from these messages, and I put this, I'll send it to you. And I've kept New Zealand Post and profit <laughs> over the last 40 years, sending stuff to anybody who asks. I don't think I've ever turned down a request because I want to be generous. I don't want to take that thought and have my heart hardened. And I want that for you too. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.